What's going on, ladies and gents? Robert Sykes, KetoSavage.com, and I've got special guest Michael Griffith on the line today. We're going to talk about uh, all kinds of stuff, one of which is how to truly train your abs. Without further ado, how are you, Michael? Doing good. How you doing, Robert? I'm good, man. I'm good. So uh, just kind of give the audience a little background on on your story, kind of what got you in the keto space to begin with. Yeah, well, I'm a physical therapist, uh, CSCS, Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist through the NSCA. You know, I kind of have a bodybuilding background, weight lifted since I was 16. I was doing uh, seminars as a therapist for other therapists. It's a continuing ed course. You know, I travel around and do these courses on sports science and kind of this 3D training concept that I'll talk to you about. And I uh, got my own abs workout, obviously, we'll talk about that. And I'm a type 1 diabetic. I've had that since I was nine years old. And um, the keto's really, really made a difference with that. I'll just give you a little bit of background to the therapy part and kind of how I took a little bit different path compared to what traditional therapy is. And, you know, I just, Robert, I just recall a story when I was in PT school, you have once you get to the end of the education process, you have clinics that you have to go to, mm-hmm. clinical rotations. You'll do like just various settings like hospitals, neuro rehab, sports medicine. And I was in my first sports medicine clinic and didn't really have that much background with it. But, and I just recall seeing this, this basketball player, about six seven, big guy, had some kind of knee issue. I don't remember what it was. But the therapist there, and I, I wasn't working with him, but I was just observing. And the therapist there had him doing this exercise where – he was sitting on the stool, and I'm sure you've seen him, but it's like an office stool with wheels on it, so you mm-hmm. can they're mobile. You can scoot around. Well, the, the injured leg, let's say it was his right leg, he was sitting on the stool. So he had this big old guy sitting on this little bitty stool, and he's using his right leg to kind of flex his knee and pull himself around the whole clinic. So you got this big old guy scooting around the whole clinic, and, and I just kind of, it just kind of stunned me. It's like, well, especially with the weightlifting background. What, what is he doing? You know, what does that have to do with basketball? Mm-hmm. What, what is the application? Because the only time I see guys sitting down is if they're on the bench, and usually they don't want to be there. So yeah. it, it, it kind of got me thinking, well, you know, it just doesn't seem like a very functional exercise. Yeah, every other physical therapy clinic does it, but what is the relevance to improving his performance as a basketball player? So that kind of got things shaken up a little bit about the way I was trained for, especially doing exercise as a modality for treating injuries. And so I, you know, I started thinking, well, what does the hamstring do? You know, and if I was to ask you, you know, which muscle flexes the knee, what, what would your answer be? I know you know this one, but yeah, if I'm, I'm going down to be the hamstring, the hamstring. Yeah. So the textbook definition of the hamstring is to flex the knee, but what does the hamstring do when this say this basketball player, when he's running down the court or cutting through the lane? Well, it doesn't flex the knee. I mean, if you think about it, when the foot hits the ground, the knee flexes and gravity flexes the, meat, the knee. You know, why would a muscle work when, when it doesn't have to? So, mm-hmm. so what does it do? And I kind of had to rethink, because all of our training is just the textbook definitions. I had to rethink, well, functionally, what does the hamstring do? You know, it attaches on the fibular head and then immediately on the tibial condyle. You got a lot of rotation. So there's, some, there's this whole 3D thing going on, this whole rotation. There's some side-to-side movement. So it doesn't just flex the knee. Now, if, you know, you kind of have to think outside the box as a, with our bodybuilding and weightlifting background. Because if you want to train the hamstrings, you want high, muscle hypertrophy, you're going to have to do hamstring curls. I mean, that's just it. But if you want to enhance performance for an athlete, 
then hamstring curls may not be the best exercise. So I kind of started rethinking that. And, you know, if you take knee issues, for example, if somebody has patellofemoral problems or IT band problems or some kind of ACL insufficiency, the typical traditional therapy model is to do something like VMO exercises, fastest, mad- mis- fastest excuse me, fastest medialis. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, the theory is, which I'm sure you're familiar with this, is that that's kind of weak and the vastus lateralis is a little bit strong and it's too dominant. So you got this muscle imbalance and, and I'm, I'm sure that has some merit, but it's a little bit antiquated because, you know, the knee is caught in the middle. It's affected by the foot and the hip. That's what feeds the knee. So, you know, I kind of like this detective work where I'm trying to figure out, well, this guy has chronic knee problems, regardless if it's patellofemoral or what. And just doing some of these, you know, ball squeezes or whatever to get the VMO to fire, that's nice, but it's not going to address the causes. And, you know, for example, not to get too, you know, too geeky here, but they can have a problem in their foot, like this four-foot barris. It's just an abnormal uh, deformity, not really deformity, but abnormal bony mm-hmm. relevance to the M foot. And that can cause the hip rotators to be tight, so it decreases their hip internal rotation. And then the knee gets hit. The symptoms go to the knee. So you got the cause at the foot, you got the compensation at the hip, and then you have symptoms at the knee. So trying to think, you know, biomechanically, big picture, how can I address the causes, the compensations, and and the symptoms? Not just focusing on the symptoms, though. So that's kind of the approach I took to to the therapy background. No, I love it, man. Like there's a, I don't know, like I this this is not my strong suit. So I'm gonna. I'm going to probably dive into all kinds of questions here, but I mean, I've learned a lot like of biomechanics and how the body moves through mm-hmm. trial and error, but it, it's going to be cool to have you on the show here with your background um, because your, your level of expertise is just far, far, far beyond mine. Um, <laughs> so what, what got you into to that in the first place? What made you want to go into physical therapy and, and truly learn how the body moves and works? Well, I kind of had a you know pre-med background and I always was geared towards that. And just I, got, I had a friend that was a therapist and saw what what he did and then did some clinical observation. And then just, you know, I still like the kind of the sports medicine side of it and working with athletes. And um, it just kind of, you know, I think with a lot of people, usually people, you know, they'll have an knee injury or an ACL or something tear. And that's kind of what they go through a bunch of therapy. And that's what kind of gets them hooked. And I didn't have that per se, but I just had some, you know, a friend and some experience that just, you know, it just gets you excited about helping people out that way. Mm-hmm. For sure. So what, uh, we're, we're just going to dive into the weeds here, man. Cause like, so okay, yeah, this yeah. is not my area of expertise. So I'm going to be asking, uh, out of ignorance and, and just curiosity. Um, what, what are some of the best, or actually what, what are some of the most common injuries you see amongst athletes? Like when you have people come into your clinic, what are some of the, the common problems and the reason for those? Well, most of the people I see are, they're kind of sent to me because a little bit of a specialty case because they've either had some traditional therapy or some other kind of work and it's helped them to a certain degree, but then it's chronic. They keep getting re-injured and re-injured. So, you know, everything, but like, like the hamstrings is a big one, chronic hamstring strains. And then, you know, I'm more of a lower extremity person, so I really don't do much shoulder or elbow kind of stuff. I send those to other people, but so that would be hamstrings, any kind of knee issue, foot issue, like I said, IT band syndrome, patellofemoral problems, and then some stuff at the foot as well. I'm really a big kind of a foot guy too. I like that because it's pretty complex in understanding how the foot works and how it actually affects the knee and the hip is, I'm still trying to get it. There's a lot to it. 
are most of uh, the people that come to see you, are they like runners or what, what uh, sport do the majority of them participate in? Yeah, it could be any sport, you know, running, football, basketball, soccer, see some soccer kids too, um, any sport really. What, uh, I mean, what, what seems to be, like, is there a particular sport that yields the most injured athletes, I guess? Oh, I'm sure there's some statistics as far as like, you know, ankle injuries in basketball. Mm-hmm. But I, I kind of see that just a whole array of, of different sports and athletes. I love I love running. I don't do it very much because I don't know. I feel like it, it kind of competes with what I'm trying to do in bodybuilding versus mm-hmm. like the endurance training, you know, versus yes. the hypertrophy training. Um, yes. But I do like to run. However, you know, it's it's hard on my ankles and it's hard on my my knees. I used to have real bad shin splints from when I used to box and do mm-hmm. like a jump rope. Okay, yeah. What are some things that that I could be doing to kind of minimize those injuries? Well, it's hard just to give, here's a cookbook definition. You could just Google that. You know, if you have shin splints, what are some exercises? And they'll just give you some basic cookbook stuff. But, you know, again, that's where I like to go back to the biomechanics. What is causing that the tibia or the shin or the anterior tib, some of the musculature around that area, why is that getting chewed up? What's causing that? So, and it's more than you know, sometimes doing some stretches will get you partway down the road, but it's more than just uh, a generic exercise. It's the biomechanics. Like say you could have a leg length discrepancy. If that that leg is shorter, there's a little more ground reaction forces going through that leg, the way it hits. Um, You compensate that by towing out a little bit. If you see somebody with a short leg, they're going to stand with that leg towed out. Mm -hmm. That's going to tighten up your hip rotators. So the hip is shut down a little bit. So then there's just more forces that's going through the tibia that should be dissipated up to the hip so to speak so there's just a lot of components that play play into it so that's where i like to do some analysis to try to figure out so to say well you know so, sometimes you can't do that but just say well just try this exercise with with uh what about like when you're running like your gait the uh, i've heard that you want to have like a you know some people do like a heel strike they have like you know yeah just try and run their toes is there like a, a better or worse technique there Oh, yeah, that's that's a huge one. That's a great question because, you know, just a few years back, that whole – just all the shoe where they came out to get you to land on your forefoot and all the Kenyan runners, how they run barefoot and they're like miraculously, you know, the, the records they have. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of waned a little bit, but I went to a lot of courses that were, were on that, you know, and I think most people had a pretty balanced view that there's definitely some merit to that. And I think it helps to, you know, maybe train barefoot a little bit, but you don't want to – I'm kind of in the middle, you know, I'm not saying there's no validity to it and I'm not going to jump in and everything I'm going to do is wear those crazy kind of shoes and do barefoot running so I can load my forefoot. But, um, so like I said, I think it's waned a little bit, but there's definitely, you can see like some people with some knee injuries, just getting them to get a little bit more of a, a forefoot strike. As can, opposed um, to heel. Hit, as the opposed heel to heel. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, that, that's fascinating. I used to, I used to have these lifting shoes um, they have like the the zero give raised heel for like squats and whatnot. Um, okay. But since then, I've gone to like a zero sole minimalist yes. type shoe. Minimalist, yes. And I swear, my back used to have all kinds of pains, and I couldn't stand for extended periods of time. And now, like they're the most comfortable footwear. I, I wear my training shoes, you know, <laughs> casually because they're so yeah. comfortable. Yeah, you can see definitely people have results with those, and I think that's that's another trend that's going the whole minimalist shoe and you know usually there's a raised hill mm-hmm. so you're a little bit plantar flexed and you're going with some flatter hills and seeing some good results with that it's fun to see it yeah absolutely um so what about 
I'm going to ask some more self, mm-hmm. selfish questions here. Sure, sure. Um, so with my background, like in bodybuilding, um, what are some common mistakes that you see, like coming from like the lifter's perspective? Because, I mean, you know, you've got your more dangerous, uh, supposedly dangerous movements like your squats and your deadlift. And then if you want to go, you know, have multiple compound movements kind of integrated into one, like a power lifter, clean and press, stuff like that. What are some of the movements that are just high risk and could probably be performed differently to avoid and be more proactive with injury prevention? Well, I, you know, I, I'm a big weightlifter kind of guy. And I, I'm, I don't think weightlifting is that risky. I'm a big fan of it. So I, I kind of err on the side of go ahead and try it. Like there's the whole Olympic lifting, which that's not my background. I listen to guys that are really big into that and they have whole gyms that are really focused and geared on that. And there's, you know, there's some naysayers that say, oh, you shouldn't do Olympic lifts. You're going to injure yourself. And they're just too complex. But you know, obviously with some good coaching, mm-hmm. there's a lot of benefit that you can get out of some of these more compound lifts and Olympic lifts. It's not my forte, but so I, I'm a big fan of people giving it a shot. You know, it's obviously comes down to good coaching. That's going to be, that's going to be the key for it. Yeah. I'm, I'm, kinda, I'm glad you said that actually, because like a lot of people, they'll just want to say, you know, they'll try and steer away from lifting, but lifting, I mean, Perfect example. Like I used to have a terrible back until I started lifting, so and started then my, lifting, yeah, yeah, my back improved tremendously. Yeah, totally. See a lot of that, and then, so people are scared of it. They have some kind of biased viewpoint from somebody, and they'll. I think they just end up getting worse if they don't mm-hmm. try to do some resistance training. What What are your favorite lifts? Uh, I just do more traditional kind of bodybuilding lifts. You know, I split my workouts up into. Like three days a week, I'll do chest, shoulders, tries one day, back and bys one day, and I did legs this morning. So I'm standing up right now because if I sit down for an hour, I'm going to be cramping up pretty bad. <laughs> and then I do my, you know, I do my abs every day. I have that's part of it. Different different workout each day for those. So what? So, um, yeah. what, what, how do you do your deadlifts? Like I'm curious. I'm always curious about deadlifts. And and let's talk about let's just talk about deadlifts and squats because I, I like to get your take on that. So with mm-hmm. regard to deadlifts, you know, you get your conventional and you've got your sumo. Talk about, uh, like, for the person that might not be familiar with the two, just kind of compare and contrast those and, and what muscles you're going to be activating. Well, I, I'm not much of a, a deadlift expert. I mean, I, again, I'm more on the therapy side, more on the performance base. So I kind of focus my training, if I'm training somebody and myself, towards that. So I definitely do squats. I love squats. To me, it's a fundamental exercise, and so are deadlifts, but it's, it's never been my strength. So Do you do more of a, like a narrow stance with squats, or do you go wider? I do more of just shoulder width squat. Shoulder width? Yes. Very good, very good. Yeah. I don't like, uh, I don't know, for me, going really wide on either deadlifts or squats, it just it puts it's a lot more much. tension on, uh-huh. the, on the hips, and I just, it's not the muscle I'm trying to work so much, you know? Yeah. And that's kind of some of my background, too, with the National Strength and Conditioning Association. There's, there's some things that are just ingrained in you about your stance and all that, and sometimes I'll go outside the box on that and try different things, but I still kind of stick with the standard shoulder width. Absolutely. Squat. So what's uh what are some good like just at home techniques people can use if they're, you know, like post training legs or prior to training legs or just some good injury prevention if they have like a you know, if they're experiencing some pain, like the foam rolling is really hot right now. What what's your take on mm-hmm. foam rolling? Yeah, foam rolling's good. I mean it's if you've got some muscle spasm or trigger points, it definitely can help get that and people you know, there's some self-therapeutic just to doing it, whether the results are the best or not. People like it, and I think you can get a lot out of it. I'm more, 
kind of more on the dynamic stretching movement. You know, their static stretching is just still holding stretch to your toes to get the hamstrings. And there's the more dynamic movements. And it seems like the trend is really going more towards the dynamic warm-ups instead of just traditional stretching. So I'm not real big on stretching per se, but definitely for dynamic movement. So some, some, you know, the hot buttons that I see across the board, this is the seminars I've talked about, and this is just coming from working with athletes and is um, the two main big buttons that I try to touch that are, are pretty common. I mean, I could pick nine out of 10 people. They're going to have some problems with these, especially if they have a little bit of some kind of injury or pre pre injury type thing. And that's tight hip flexors and tight hip rotators. Mm-hmm. So I usually, that is my default button. And I usually go to those first. And if coaches ask me what's some, some things, some drills I can give my kids to do before basketball or football, I'm going to take them through two or three drills is all, not overload them, but two ones that are really going to get the hip flexors moving and get the hip external rotators loosened up. Because again, you have like in your glutes underneath those, you've got your piriformis. I'm sure people are familiar with that. That's kind of the, the one that gets all the press for an external rotator, but there's about six of them. And um, those, if those are tight, they're going to decrease hip internal rotation which is so important to have. Every time your foot hits the ground, you're going to get some internal rotation going up through your tibia, through your femur, and into your hip. And if that's limited, it, it can cause a whole host of problems into the foot, the ACL, the IT band, the hip. It's, it's just, there's a lot of, of damage it can do. So I usually go for those default buttons of trying to get the hip flexors moving and get those hip rotators going through some, some strength drills, some agility drills, those kind of things. So what are, it'd be kind of hard to describe this over a podcast for somebody listening instead of getting a visual, but yeah, what are some that. good, we'll, we'll just try, <laughs> what, what are some, uh, what are some good movements or drills that they could do that can kind of, you know, lead into the primary movements like to loosen up those joints? Yeah. So one would be a walking lunge. And typically when you do a lunge, you're trying to strengthen the, um, the lunge leg, mm-hmm. but this is not to get the lunge leg. So say I step forward with my left leg to lunge. I'm doing this to target my right hip flexor. The hip flexor is in the front of your hip anteriorly. So I'm going to do a left leg lunge, but I'm going to keep my right leg behind me. And instead of bending my knee, which is what a typical lunge is, correct? Is that kind of how you do it? Yeah. So you're going to bend the back leg, your right leg, your right knee. You're going to keep that knee as straight as you can. And as I lunge forward, again, this would be awesome if I had a video to show you. But as you lunge forward, you're going to reach both hands overhead behind you. I'm kind of doing it now in my room here. Overhead behind you to keep your body up straight. So as you lunge forward, your body's going backwards, and that's going to put a total dynamic stretch on that right hip flexor. And then you step through with your right leg and lunge forward, reach your hands over behind you, keep the back knee straight, and just keep walking, do walking lunges for 20 or so, and turn around and go the other way. And typically what I see, just say if somebody's right hip flexor is tighter than the left, when they do with their left leg behind them, they'll be able to keep their knee pretty straight. But once they lunge forward with their left leg, so their right leg is behind them. Hopefully I'm not confusing too much. Mm-hmm, you. Right, leg, right leg is behind you, and your knee should be straight. But if your hip flexor is tight, your knee is going to bend. It's not going to let you do it straight So and because it's kind of shut down a little bit. So just by doing those lunges, it totally opens up those hip flexors, opens up your abs a little bit as well. And the key is really to reach in your hands behind you so your body just doesn't flop or move forward because then you're, you're not getting your hip flexor. 
So hands behind you, but overhead? Yes, overhead. This is overhead reach. Okay, gotcha. And that's going to loosen up your hip flexors for both your right and yeah. left. Yeah, and it's a dynamic exercise. It's not just doing a static hip flexor stretch, which that's fine. You might want to start with that. But this one is a little more aggressive, and it has a little more carryover, too. I think just doing static stretches is good, but it doesn't have as much carryover unless you're going to dynamically move them because that's how they move. You know, If you're running, you need good hip extension. You need, need to be able to get through that hip mm-hmm. flexor, and that's obviously a dynamic movement. So if we can do stretches that are a little more movement-oriented, I think they just have better carryover. This is good. I like this. I'm going to start incorporating all of these. So what, what's another good one? We'll just rapid fire some here. Okay. So my next favorite one would be, and this one's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be hard to explain, but it's an agility ladder drill. And this one is to get your hip rotators and I'll, I'll do my best to explain it. But if you have one foot, say I have my right foot inside one of the ladders, hopefully people can picture these agility ladders are pretty popular now. Mm-hmm. So my right foot is inside the ladder and my left leg is outside and my left leg is doing a, my knee is doing a lunge. Okay, so as I lunge with my left leg, I'm going to take my right hand and you do a rotational reach. So all I'm doing is taking my right hand to touch the outside of my, my left foot. So I don't know if you could picture that, but as you reach across, you're having to rotate through that left hip. Okay. So you're stretching those hip rotators dynamically. Gotcha, and then you just repeat okay. with the other side? And then you, you're going to step up to the next rung of the ladder with your left leg, step out with your right leg and do a right leg lunge. And this time it's always taking the opposite hand. If you just take your opposite hand across your leg, you're going to get those hip rotators in any kind of drill or movement. So you're going to bend that right knee this time, take your left hand, same thing, do a rotational reach to the outside of your right foot, kind of touch the floor or the grass Mm -hmm. and then come back and do it all over again. And the key is to really, get a good lunge because if you stay up too high, you're going to take all that rotation through your back, through your lumbar spine. And sometimes you want to go there anyway because your hip is tight and it doesn't want to go through there so it's easier to take it through your back and that's partly why people have some back problems. It's getting chewed up because the hip is shutting, shut down. Kind of overpowering the back because it's not doing its job. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so that's a, and that's a fun one to do. It takes a couple times to get it. The main thing is the, the lunge leg when you step it out you have to keep your foot straight as you can, mm-hmm. like pointing in the ladder, the direction of the ladder. Because if you're tight, you're going to want to toe out that foot a little bit, and then you're not getting the rotators as much. It's just kind of a bailout system. So that's the one thing in coaching that that I have to, to work on. But people like that. It's pretty quick. And after you've done it a few times, you could totally feel it. You can add some dumbbells to it, like some five or tens, and that will really light your hips up. And it, it gets you moving. People with back problems love it because once they get those hips loosened up, their their back starts feeling better. And for athletes, if you get those hip rotators going, they just uh, they just do better, mm-hmm. and they're less prone to to injury. Because the problem is, you have this whole three D concept I want to talk about. But three planes of motion: you move straight up and down as the sagittal plane, you move side to side as the frontal plane, and then you rotate as the transverse plane. And all of our training. Most of it is in the sagittal plane, straight up and down. Like you go to the gym, you know, what are most of the machines? You know, straight up and down, squats, straight up and down, deadlifts, straight up and down. And that's fine. But especially for the athletic population, you, you really, you're going to be doing some more rotational movements. And, but all of our training is all geared towards straight up and down. So those muscles are already just, they're kind of neglected. They're mm-hmm. kind of detrained. So if we can just attack those, add some more rotational components to, 
to the training, then they're, they, they just do a lot better. It is interesting you think about it because, you know, if you look at all the machines, I'm picturing my gym right now and all the machines, all the equipment, there's very few rotation. There's like the ab rotation. Yeah, the ab rotation. That's yeah. about like the only thing that comes to mind off the top of my head. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I have pictures in my talks that I show all these pictures of just sagittal planes, straight up and down stuff. And even, but even with somebody that's not an athlete, just say that, you know, you're just training, you want to get your legs strong or getting more cut to find. And just, you know, working with ladies that do a lot of lunges because they want to tighten up everything and all the lunges again, walking lunges, step out, step back lunges, they're all straight up and down. I've got these kind of 3D rotational lunges. It's similar to that ladder drill, but and this one's too complicated to explain, but I have them do a, a rotational lunge with, again, reaching that opposite hand around with some dumbbells and they're light dumbbells. Like I've worked with some ladies that They'll do lunges with 25, 30-pound dumbbells. They're just beasts, you know? Mm-hmm. But I, I just give them these 10s. They're just laughing. It's like, this is ridiculous. Have them do some of these rotational lunges, and they'll come back the next day and just they'll just hate me because they've never trained those hip rotators to that degree. And once they do that, it, start, it starts to really help. I mean, it benefits their performance. They get tightened up even better, stronger. So it's, it's huge to me. So that's one of the things I really like to, to focus on. So – yeah, I don't know. If, you said it's gonna be hard to explain, but I'm I'm curious now. So a rotational lunge, like what does that even look like? Okay, so say I'm um, I'm gonna do my left leg. So I'm facing straight, and if you picture a clock in front of you, I'm gonna take my left leg back to between the seven and eight o'clock on a clock. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you can picture that. But my leg, my toe is pointed straight out. It's not turned towards me. I wish I could show it to you. So left leg seven to eight o'clock. And the right leg stays straight. So I'm just doing a lunge, reaching towards my toes, say. That's going to load my hip up a little bit more. Mm -hmm. If I really want to get the hip rotators, I'm going to, again, same thing with the ladder. I'm going to take my right hand and do a rotational reach to touch the floor on the outside of my foot, of my left foot. Okay. So that's really going to wind up those hip rotators. Totally get them. And if you add some weight to it, it, it's really, again, it's really going to engage those hip rotators. It stretches them and strengthens them at the same time. So again, standing straight, left leg rotation would be between seven and eight o'clock on a clock. Do that arm reach across to my toes, step back to the starting position and do the same thing on my right leg. It goes on the clock between four and five o'clock on a clock. Gotcha. So hopefully I haven't totally confused everybody. It's really not that complex. You do it a couple times. like, Oh, I get it. I can feel it. This makes sense. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll try these. I'm, I'm gonna do. Uh, I'm gonna do these on my next leg day for sure. What's uh? What are some? Because I've done, I've done a couple uh, to try and broaden my my knowledge of different you know dynamic and static stretches. So I've done like the bird dog stretch and uh, like ro- uh, rotating planks. What's your take on those? I'm, I'm not familiar with the bird dog. Explain that one. So basically, it's pretty popular in the bodybuilding community. Basically, mm-hmm. you you have like one knee on the ground, and then the opposite leg, you you know hold straight up, um, and the opposite arm, or the the same. Oh, this is kind of hard to explain. I don't know how you do. Yeah, that. it is hard. Yeah, I, I hear you. <laughs> so for instance, my my left knee is on the ground. My right leg is going to be parallel to the ground, uh, you know, sticking straight out, and my uh, my right. Uh, arm is going to be on the ground 
and then my left hand is going to be sticking straight out, kind of like a like a Superman pose, basically. Um, oh, I see it. Yeah, I just Googled it. Yeah, yeah. So that that's okay. supposed, and then I basically kind of like just Superman. Alternate. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so you just alternate. Yeah. And that's kind of a, in therapy they use that a lot. It's kind of like a back exercise they use. They alternate and do those to get your back extensors and lumbosacral, all that area, try to get that going. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a pretty dynamic, good stretch. Yeah, it's pretty good. Like after, you mm-hmm. know, you do five sets, you know, rotating each side and, mm-hmm. you know, just hold that for a moment. And I feel much, much looser, ready to go when I start training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it, it gets your back for sure and your hips going as well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, okay, so let's talk about uh, your your type 1 diabetes a little bit. I'm just going to cover all, all bases here. Sure, sure. So you found out at nine years old that yes. that was what you had or diagnosed with? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is that, yeah, is... just kind of the typical onset for type 1 diabetes. I was third grade and raised a teacher, can I go to the bathroom? The teacher, can I get some water? You know, every five minutes and started losing some weight and then went to the doctor and found found out I had it. Was there a history of it in your family or did it kind of just no, get you a surprise? No, no history. No history in our family, type 1 or type 2. Hmm. So what, what, uh, how did that kind of change things? Like you were having to take insulin after that at such a young age? Yeah. Yeah. Having to take insulin. Yeah. That, you know, back in the day just did two shots then. Now I do, I still do shots. I don't do the pump. I know there's pluses and minuses to shots and pumps, but I, to me, the needles are no big deal. They're, they're so small, like four, six millimeters. I don't mind it. Injectables are kind of a big thing nowadays anyway, with all the B vitamins and mm-hmm. CRT and all that. It's, it's no big deal. So, so yeah, I do like four shots a day now and really monitor my blood sugars like crazy. I do my best to truly, really try to control it because, you know, just being in the medical field. Actually, I had a guy today at the gym this morning doing legs. Comes up to me, said he had a friend, 60 years old, stubbed his toe. He never goes to the doctor. And um, it's black and it's all swollen, I said. He said, well, what, should he do something? I go, yes. I mean, he probably has diabetes, type 2 diabetes, uncontrolled, never been tested, high blood sugars. If you just stub your toe and get an infection, it's black. That's big trouble. I mean, it's getting necrosed. He's probably had cellulitis. It may be to the bone. And he needs to, it's been like five days. He needs to get to a doctor ASAP because he, he's in jeopardy of, of losing that toe, if, if not more. So mm-hmm. seeing all that makes me like, I am going to do my best to take and take care of this. I test my blood sugar like six, eight times a day. I'm a little bit compulsive with it, but just want to make sure it's on, you know, especially if I get up early in the morning and going to work out, I want to, if I can get it started at the right blood glucose, then, then the rest of the day is just a lot easier. So this is interesting. I've never had a type one on the show before. And a lot of people oh, okay. in the keto space are under the impression that a type one diabetic can't even use a ketogenic diet. Oh, really? Huh? Well, it's the ideal for a type one. I mean, I've been low carb for like 20 years anyway. Mm-hmm. So I think the if you take diabetes and you really want to control it, take it to its logical conclusion, you will come up with the conclusion that carbs are, you can't do carbs. Mm-hmm. I heard one of these podcasters say it's like telling somebody with a peanut allergy, well, just you need to take this amount of peanuts so we know how much epinephrine to give you. Mm-hmm. It, it just doesn't just don't eat the peanuts. Yeah. Stay away from the carbs. Yeah, and, it, it's interesting. <laughs> There's so many yeah. misconceptions about it right now. Yeah, my wife is a certified diabetes educator and, you know, kind of pushes her buttons, all the carbs they recommend, and she kind of has to follow some of their protocols, but it just makes it makes no sense. So it is totally diabetes-friendly. And um, like I said, I, I was low-carb, but not really. I kind of cheated a little bit because my energy levels would be low, especially training and working out and training clients. And, like, I'd get these 
Ghirardelli dark chocolate chips, like 60%. And I would, after dinner, just take some of those. Mm-hmm. And I, I have no idea how many carbs I was probably getting, and it would affect my blood sugar a little bit. But once I really, once I went keto, and my blood sugar stabilized even more, no low blood sugars. Just it's just a lot more consistent with increasing your fats. It has you know zero glycemic in, index, so it does nothing to my blood sugars. It doesn't. I don't have to adjust my insulin whatsoever for the fat. As much as I eat or as little as I eat, does mm-hmm. nothing to it. So, so how long have you been keto now in total? Like when did you start that? Yeah, so almost come in May will be two years. Very cool, very cool. So, what is like a typical fluctuation in you know blood glucose for you know type one diabetic? Because I mean. Some of these numbers, like, mm-hmm. they just blow, blow me away. Mm. Yeah, like I said, my wife's a, a, a certified diabetes educator. She works in an acute care setting. And, like, she saw somebody yesterday that had, like, a 1,200 blood sugar. 1,200. I mean, that's, that's insane. just insane to me. Yeah. And the A1C, their A1C was, it was 16, which I think is the highest. Once it gets above that, it just says high. Mm-hmm. So a normal A1C should be below six mine have been like 5.4 for like 20 some years so Mm -hmm. um no but below six so you know 16s and just it's just crazy thinking about that so yeah it just depends on how well you control it for me i mean i if my blood sugar you know i want normal blood sugars and i kind of got this from dr bernstein i don't know if anybody's familiar with him but he's kind of a a real low carb guy he's not keto i would kind of wish he'd go that direction but um, you know, he says you have the right to a normal blood sugar and that would be somewhere in the eighties. Mm-hmm. So if my blood sugar is, you know, an hour after lunch or something, if it's going up, if it's one twenty five, one thirty, a lot of people would be like, well, that's fine. I'm, I may even feel low at that, but that's not good enough for me. I want a normal blood sugar, which is in the eighties. So I'll, I'll just take, I'll even take one unit of insulin just to get it back down because I just, I guess I'm a little paranoid. I see so many, you know, so many complications from it. I, Maybe a little bit of fear. Um, I just don't want that to happen to me. So take a shot. No big deal. I'm on my way and about my life. So so what does your – like? do you test your glucose like throughout the whole day? Yes. Yeah, like I said, about six times a day. So what – just kind of walk me through a typical day. Like, you know, what time you eat? What do you sure. eat? What happens to your blood glucose at, you know, these different intervals? Like just kind of mm-hmm. talk to me here. Yeah, I should have my glucometer in front of me so I could look at them. But like I get up early to work out real early, probably insanely early, but like 3.30. So I check it first thing. And uh, this morning it was like 112, which is a little bit up there, but it's still normal. It's, I'll take that any day. And um, just because I'm fasted, you know, I if, if I don't get some insulin in me, even though 112 is normal, you could release some – it's called the Dawn Phenomenon, which I'm sure you're familiar with that. But it can, your blood sugar can start – rising, which for you, it's no big deal. You just produce some more and you're good. So I'll have to take like one and a half units right right when I get up, stretch a little bit, um, head to the gym, and then get my breakfast. And I'll take, I'll check my blood sugar again. It's usually pretty normal. Sometimes it'll scoot up a little bit, maybe 120. So I'll take, uh, take some insulin. I don't take much. I take Novolog and Lantus. Novolog is the short-acting insulin which I do that before meals, and Lantus is the long-acting, and that I take once a day. So there's always some insulin on board. Mm-hmm. And so I'll take my insulin before I eat breakfast. I take like three units of Novolog, which isn't too much. I've got a friend of mine that's a type 1 diabetic, and he takes, you know, not like I'm bragging or anything, but he, I, I just don't, 
I don't know if he was trained, and I try not to lay guilt trips on him. I'm super nice, maybe too nice, but he eats everything, like donuts, desserts. It's like, didn't they tell you you're not supposed to eat this stuff? And he takes 30 units of Novolog for his meals. Like, so 10 times, 10, you know, 10 times the amount I take. So if you just get those carbs out, I mean, it's, it's going to cost you less money, for one. Yeah. You don't have to take as much, and it's just easier to control. So then, I, again, I'll test before each meal and test in the afternoon before if I do a little bit of cardio. Sometimes I get a chance to do that. And then, you know, again, before my meal at dinner and then maybe before bed again. Does your, do you notice, like, your, your insulin are your glucose continuing to rise throughout the entire day, or does it drop off at any point? No, it, it fluctuates. It does. I mean, it's it's not going to just rise as the day goes on because I've got insulin on board, so I'm usually pretty good. Kind of my my more sensitive times would be a little bit late afternoon because if I'm driving like to a clinic, I'm sitting down a little bit. So sometimes it'll rise a little bit. And what I mean by rise, it'll be 150, mm-hmm. which to me is not acceptable. Well, that's still not too bad. And usually if I do some cardio, that'll knock it right back down. I don't have to take any other insulin because cardio will definitely bring it back down a little bit. So what uh, what do you notice with like your training um, versus like weight training uh, compared to like cardio and its effect on your blood glucose? Yeah, there is a difference. So weight training does not require – it's not going to affect my glucose as much. The, the theory is there's some literature that says it, it affects you maybe six hours later. And I have – I don't know how you quantify that personally. I don't you know if I – how it's going to affect my blood sugar at night, I'm not sure. But definitely cardio does. If, if my blood sugar is 150, I get on the treadmill, do some stuff, it's going to bring it back down to the 100 range. If it's 200 plus, then I have to take a little bit of insulin with, with the cardio because the cardio is not enough. Sometimes it's, it's just not enough to bring it down. If I had lifted weights at 200, okay, let me just give you the scenario. So blood sugar is 200. I'm going to do some cardio. I'd have to take one, one and a half units of insulin with the cardio to bring my insulin to a normal level. Mm-hmm. If I was just lifting weights, I would have to, it's called a um, sliding scale because you have to kind of balance it out. I would have to take at least two units, two to two and a half units to bring my insulin, my blood sugar, excuse me, back down to a normal level without the cardio. So cardio does make, make a difference. Do you notice any difference in like how you perform with the insulin in the gym? No, only if it's low. And that's the, it, it, diabetes doesn't bother me. Like people say, oh, don't you hate taking shots? You have to do three or four of those a day. And I could say the same thing. Well, don't you hate brushing your teeth? You have to brush your teeth three times a day. It doesn't, it's, it's no big deal. Yeah. You just do it, you know? Yeah. Um, but the only time it really bothers me is if I'm ready for a good workout and my blood sugar is low. Say it's, you know, 60 or something. And, and I usually can't work out. It's just I'd have to eat something. It takes about 20 minutes for my blood sugar to get back up. And by the time I work out, it'd just knock it back down and, so that, that's the only time I, I see how it affects it, and I get a little bit frustrated with that. But it's not very often. What do you, what do, you do? Like, What's your go-to food when, you're, when your blood sugar is low like that? Well, that's a good question. So what do you do if you're, if you're on a ketogenic diet and you have low blood sugar? Now, your diabetes specialist is going to tell you you've got to have some kind of carbohydrate. I mean, your blood sugar is low. You've got to have some orange juice, a cracker, whatever, 15 grams of carbs to, to get that up. And I don't do that. I'm not, I, I want to stay keto. And I'm not like at a stupid level, like, oh, I'm going to let my blood sugar drop and keel over while I'm trying to, you know, stay in ketosis kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I, I just do like a, a protein bar, like half of a protein bar, and that gets it up just as fine for me. I mean, it's still going to take about 15, 20 minutes for your blood sugar to get back up, whether, regardless of what you eat. So I do the protein bar, and 
just half of one and it brings it right back up, I'm fine. Interesting. Yeah, I think a lot of people could potentially use type 1 diabetes as an excuse not to do keto for that very reason. But yeah, yeah, you, you yeah. said it perfectly. Um, all right, so what about uh, your typical foods? Like what are your – you having like a protein bar if, it's, if your glucose is a little bit lower, but what are your typical mm -hmm. meals throughout the course of a day? Yeah, like today I had um, – you know, I listened to some of your talks and podcasts about with the whole carnivore thing, and I, I kind of gravitate towards that. I, I'm trying to experiment more with it. But for breakfast this morning I had some lettuce. I had avocado. Man, I'm totally – that's probably where I get too many carbs. I could eat three of those things a day. But yeah. I had an avocado. I know you like them too. Mm-hmm. Uh, had avocado, had some of that Mark Sisson mayonnaise. I'm totally addicted to that stuff. Uh, I, I put buy stock in his company. So that's probably my main fat source. And then I had, um, I measure out my proteins because it, it does affect how much insulin I take. So I'm kind of rigid about that. I had uh, seven ounces total of, of protein of meat. So I did six ounces, ounces of salmon and then one ounce of roast beef. That was my breakfast. Do you notice this, – this is a great question with, with mm -hmm. regard to protein, um, a great segue to this question. But like when you're measuring out your proteins, have you kind of experimented to see how different ratios of proteins uh, impact your glucose over time? Like how do you mean ratios? Like just a you know, ratio of total calories in a day. Like if you're at a higher protein ratio for the day, do you notice your glucose being higher? Yeah, if I, if I raise my protein, it definitely will raise my – my blood sugar and I could see it right in front of my eyes. Like it'd be hard for you to know unless you know, it's just a little different because even though you could test your blood sugar, you still have an appropriate amount of insulin to accommodate that protein. I don't. Mm -hmm. So I take the amount of insulin for the exact amount of protein I'm getting. If I get six ounces, say, so if I bump it up more at one more ounce, my blood sugar will definitely go up. It's, so it takes, kind of, it's kind of yeah. cool. Cause like people, uh, you know, that aren't type 1 diabetic, they wouldn't be able to, because I've tracked this and I've been able to see, you know, a raise in glucose over several days of consecutive uh -huh. tracking. But, uh -huh. you know, with you, it's, it's just much a, it's just a much cleaner slate to see how much the protein impacts things. Yeah, exactly. Because I could see it within an hour, like the next hour, it's going to be up. What is your, do you track your, your uh, ratios for like the day? Like what is your fat ratio to protein ratio? Oh, I used to do it when I first started and I kind of go a little more to the society thing. Like I, I'm pretty you know, I have a pretty standard system I do for how much I, I take and I don't, I haven't quantified it in a while, but it's probably, you know, I really don't measure my carbs because I just eat vegetables. I don't really care. I don't eat that much. Um, so I don't really measure the, the carbohydrate intake in that. I don't any, eat any other carbs. Mm -hmm. So it's probably maybe 70, 30, something like that. 70, 30. Mm-hmm. I wonder what, 65, like, if you were to do 80-20 or something, if it would change your necessary insulin that much. Yeah, well, if I increase my protein, it definitely will increase my insulin. Not much, but it, it will increase it. Hmm. And it takes me a while to titrate that and get it figured out. It's usually kind of an up-and-down process for a week or so. So that's why I, I kind of stick to my system because it's, it's a little bit of a hassle if I'm just going to up my protein. Yeah, you got to kind of figure it out. How, how many grams out. do you take a day usually of protein? It's probably... 100 to 120, 120. closer to 120. I usually go more for the ounces, so I need to go back and recalculate the grams. I haven't done it in a while. I'm at about 120 grams right now myself, so we're, okay. we're on the same yeah. page there. Yeah, that seems enough, you know. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's funny because, like, you know, in with us kind of coming from a bodybuilding background, yes. you know, it's typical oh, totally. to have much, much higher protein. Yes, twice that. 
I bet 300 grams of protein for you that would be pretty, pretty uh, adverse effects would come. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would. Uh, so to talk about, I want to talk about your your uh, you know ab training program a little bit, like your three planes of motion. Let's let's dive mm-hmm. into that. Yeah, so I'll just give you a little background on that. So again, it it kind of started in PT school, and you know you've got this whole core training, core stabilization phenomenon that's taken off oh, more than ten years ago, and it's it's still pretty pre- prevalent in especially sports performance and rehab and therapy and that kind of thing. And and again, I just recall that in, in PT school, I just remember hearing our first lecture on core stabilization. This was like more than ten years ago, and um, you know they had certain muscle groups. They say you know you've got here's the core muscles. You've got your internal obliques. You've got your multifidi. You've got the pelvic floor. And they rambled off a couple more. And, and, you know, my first thought was like, well, you have the internal obliques. What about the external obliques? I mean, aren't they invited to the party? How, how did you just come up with these four muscles? I mean, if you look in an anatomy book, the, the physiologist that every medical student, physical therapy student has their book, it's, it's Dr. Netter. It's Netter's anatomy physiology book or it's an anatomy book, excuse me. And you can look in Netter's book and you look up core muscles. Well, they're not going to be in there. And it depends on the literature you look at. If you look at just the orthopedic literature, they're going to have certain muscles for the core. If you look at you know, chiropractic literature, if you look at the, the UK, some of the literature there, there's no concise definition for a certain muscle group. So it, it's kind of obscure and it never made sense to me. And then, so I, I recall that I was in the clinic again doing a rotation had somebody with back pain, and my instructor, my PT instructor said, here's these core stabilizations that exercise that every back patient has to do. Why we have to do it, I don't know, but they told me, so I guess I should do it because I'm the student. Mm-hmm. So I get this you know, guy with some back pain, so I'm in the clinic, there's a bunch of people in there, and I have him lay down on his back and bend his knees, and I say, okay, this is what I want you to do. And I kind of look around the clinic to see who's looking. <laughs> I want you to go, Psst. because when you do that noise, Psst, you're going to get certain muscles to fire, like the transverse abdominis. That muscle is going to contract when you do that. And if you do that, then, you know, somehow, I don't know how it works, magic wand, it's going to make your back feel better because my instructor told me to do it. So, and the, the guy's looking up at me like, you got to be kidding me. So you really want me to do it. So as soon as he says, the whole clinic just looks over at you because <laughs> they think you just did it to them. And I had him do it. And I said, okay, now when you do this every time when you're in your car, I want you to stop at a stoplight, and I want you to go, Psst. every time you're brushing your teeth, I want you to do it. And if you just keep this up for a certain amount of time, those muscles will just be trained, and they'll be able to, you'll be able to do it without thinking about it. And then, you know, I, I kind of had this panoramic view of it, the, the kind of the weightlifter, the bodybuilder in me, the strength and conditioning coach in me just stepped back and said, you, there's no way I'm going to do that to people. That, maybe for somebody that's 85 years old, I, I could see it, but not for my athletes, I don't want some one of my athletes running down the football field going, yeah. <laughs> I mean, somebody's going to jack them and hit them really hard because it's just ridiculous. And it, it has, to me, it just never made sense. There's no functional carryover for it. And in my seminars, I have a picture of, of uh, Tom Brady. Maybe I just lost half your audience right there with that. But I have a picture of Tom Brady, you know, uniform on. He's on his back on the field with his knees bent. And, you know, half of what I've learned just as a therapist is from some of these Oklahoma football coaches and they have heavy accents. I can't even do it justice. But yeah, I can still hear them saying, boys, if you're on your back, you're having a bad day. And, but if you carry that over to training, you know, half the exercises we do for sports performance are on our back, yeah. especially the core exercises. 
or half the therapy exercise, most of it is on their back. And to me, that's just feeding bad information to the tissue, you know, the proprioceptors. It's proprioceptively confusing to the tissue because it's, it's moving and grooving down the field. They're upright, they're running, they're moving in all planes of motion. And they, those muscles need to be trained as close as you can to a functional per- performance perspective. So that kind of just, after that, I, I turned my back on that and kind of went a different direction. So as far as the abs go, again, your abs move just like every other muscle in all three planes of motion. Straight up and down is the sagittal plane, side to side is the frontal plane, and twisting rotation is, is the transverse plane. And you need to train all three planes of motion to get the most out of your abs. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, what are most of our ab exercises? You know, sit-ups, crunches are all sagittal plane. The Roman chair in the gym, sagittal plane. Most of it is in, in the sagittal plane. And if you really want to get increase your, your strength and your definition, I think a more comprehensive workout is going to train all three planes of motion. And another component would be, again, just kind of like I said, train your abs standing up. Because if you're on the floor doing a sit-up or a crunch, you're the floor blocks your pelvis. You mm-hmm. know, your butt is on the floor. It's not going anywhere. You can't rotate through it because the floor is blocking it. So just by doing that, you've kind of shut down that transverse plane. You know, if you're doing a crunch, you can do, you know, your opposite elbow to your knee and get a little bit of rotation that way. But your hip is not moving. So if, if your hip's not moving, then it's going to shut some of the abs down as far as their, their training and overloading them to the way they need to be overloaded so you, overloaded so you can get, get the results. Mm-hmm. So that's... Those are a couple of big, big components. And one more would be the, um, you know, the eccentric versus the concentric. So you have a couple different muscle contractions, and you know this already, but just to, to explain it. So you have a concentric muscle contraction. If you think of your bicep, that's just when you're flexing your arm, flexing your bicep. It's concentric. It's shortening the tissue. Eccentric is when you extend your arm out, and that's going to lengthen the tissue. But for the abs especially with athletes. Again, I've got all these pictures with athletes, all these movements I do. Most of what the abs do in an athletic perspective, and even just a regular performance perspective, is it's more on the eccentric side. They're having to lengthen. Like if you're going to dunk a ball, you're really having to extend through your abs in the sagittal plane so you can get the power to dunk it. Uh, You know, throwing, uh, a lot of baseball mechanics, football, a lot of it is on the eccentric side. So Mm -hmm. again, most of our routines, like a crunch, it's all just short and short and short in the tissue. You don't get really the full lengthening out of it that you can. So if you can lengthen it, and not just a stretch, but lengthen it with some weight under a load, then you're just going to get just better results and more performance results as well. One of my favorite abdominal exercises is to do like mm-hmm. a hanging leg raise. So I'm basically stretching everything out with gravity pulling against it for resistance and then doing like a toes-to-bar crunch or something. How's that? Uh-huh. Man, that is my favorite one. You just nailed it. To me, the hanging leg raises to the abs what squats are to the legs. It's the most fundamental exercise, and I try to get everybody doing that one because it it takes a lot of strength to do it. I mean, it took me like six weeks of training just to be able to get my feet up to touch the bar one time. And the cool thing about it is like it doesn't take that long. You know, I'll do like sets of 10. I'll do like three sets of 10 reps with Mm -hmm. that, and I'm going to do that in 10 minutes. That's so much more superior than doing like – 500 sit-ups in the morning oh totally because just the resistance and strength it takes to do it it's that's one of the best and i get everybody regardless of what their level is i get them doing those you know some some people a little bit overweight they just even hanging on the bars a little bit too much for them but i have them start with bringing their knees up 
until they can master that, then bringing their legs straight out. And then if they're a little bit higher fitness level, I want them to be able to touch that bar with their legs straight, knees straight with their feet and crank out some reps on those. And it's, it'll make a huge difference for your, just your definition mm-hmm. and obviously your strength. What, what are some, I mean, cause that's, uh, I mean, you're, you're pretty much engaged in all planes of motion, but less so rotational. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I would correct. think there'd be less rotational in that. Yeah, exactly. So this workout I've got divided up into three separate workouts and they're based on the planes of motion. So Monday would be the sagittal plane. So I'm doing all straight up and down exercises. Tuesday would be the frontal plane. So I'm doing all side to side stuff. And then Wednesday would be the transverse plane. So I'm doing all rotational exercises. So you could train your abs every day and not overtrain because you're picking on a different plane of motion each day. And I've got it set up where you do kind of a, kind of a circuit. Actually, it is a circuit with those. So it's the best of both worlds. You've got a lot of resistance, some heavy weight. And then you're doing some with that are just more of a burn and high reps. So you've got the best of both worlds. What's your favorite for each plane of motion? Like what's your favorite movement? Okay, so I'll just, you know, when I listen to podcasts, I kind of like to have something that I could implement or a supplement or something I could tweak in my diet or some exercise I can do. So I'll just give you the sagittal plane workout mm-hmm. for the, the most part. So again, it's a circuit. So the first one, I do the hardest one first to kind of the easiest one last because you're pretty wiped out by the time you get to the last exercise. And I've got like three or about four on this one. So the first one would be hanging leg raises. And you just do those to failure, as many reps as you can get. Uh, And I don't necessarily use resistance. I've been putting some five-pound ankle weights around my legs just to increase that a little bit. But that one just is more based on reps. Mm -hmm. The next one I do in the circuit, I, as soon as I'm done with that one, I hop to the next one. And that's just a kind of a cable curl where you use the rope on a cable machine and just you're on your knees and you bring it down like kind of like a crunch motion. I, I shouldn't say that, but it's more of a curl. You're just curling your elbows down to your knees. I'm sure you've seen it. It's a traditional exercise mm-hmm. around a long time. So does that make sense on that one? Yeah, yeah. What, what kind of reps are you shooting for? So that one I do um, probably about 10-ish, 10 to 12. But that one is one – so I'm going, to do, I'm going to do four sets of this whole circuit. So the first set, I, I kind of use the progressive overload principle on this. So the first set is a little bit lighter. When I get around to the second set on that one, I'm going to increase my weight and decrease my reps. And same thing for each set. I progressively overload with, with each set. Love it. And that's where I try to get – I think it is the best because you're kind of doing a compound set, but you're also getting some, some resistance in there as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the second one. Uh, the third one's <laughs> it's another one of these hard ones. I don't know if I could explain. I wish we could do a, a video session together. But this one, I call it a reverse throw. And this one's more on the eccentric side. So I take either a dumbbell or a medicine ball. And if it's a dumbbell, I hold it not in the middle, but I hold it with both hands on the ends. So if you have a hexagonal weight, I'm kind of gripping the, the ends with my hands. Mm-hmm. I'm going to stand on my right leg. I'm going to take that bell, that either the ball or the, the dumbbell overhead, as if I'm going to throw it behind me. So my, I want my arms as straight as I can. And I'm taking this thing pretty hard and pretty fast, throwing it behind me. And as I do that, standing on my right leg, I kick my left leg behind me at the same time. So those mus- motions are going in unison together. As my arms go back, 
my legs goes back. It's kind of an arc. It creates so an arc. Stretching all the abdominals in the front. To- yeah, and it's a sagittal plane stretch. But you've, since you've got a weight on there, and I go pretty, I try to get people going pretty heavy once they master it, because I only want like eight reps or so. That's about all you can handle with it. So you're taking your arms back and you're taking that that leg back, and it totally lengthens your your um your abs. And I've had people that. You know, they, they're totally into crunches. They're just big crunch people, and I'm not going to take that away from them. But I'll have them do a crunch first, and I'll have them go right to this. And they, they feel like it's going to rip them open because they're not used to lengthening their, their abs under mm-hmm. a load. And they love it, especially, you know, some pregnant ladies that have, you know, had their baby. They've got that little post-baby pooch going on. And um, they're, you know, I want to get rid of this pooch. And I've been doing crunches, and it's, I think it makes it worse, really. Mm-hmm. I just get them doing this whole circuit, but that that is their favorite one because they can feel it lengthening it, it stretches it out, you know, it tones it up at the same time, and that they get more definition by doing that. Do you so do you do this movement pretty rapidly, or do you just go like slow and controlled? I do like pretty rapid. Like I'm pretty throwing, rapid. like I am gonna as if I'm gonna throw it behind me. So it's a it's it's a ballistic type movement. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I'll try that and too. So I do like eight or so on that leg, and then I'll switch to my left leg, and then do the throws and kick my right leg behind me. And it's it's a little bit hard to do. Um, if you have tight hip flexor, you might compensate a little bit for it. If your back's a little bit weak, you might feel kind of like a pinching of your spine back there. That usually goes away. But just adjust your. Usually, I didn't even start them with much weight, real light, so they get the motion first. But then load them up. Like I'll use like a, a fifty pound. 50 pound dumbbell and then work up to 60 pounds oh wow so you're going so, quite heavy on it yeah because it, it you could really feel it load your abs and your core that way <laughs> do people ever stop you and think that you're having a seizure yeah <laughs> it looks like it sometimes i think i'm going to throw throw the weight at them or something <laughs> okay so that's the what well, that's the third one and then the next one is i just do the, the ab wheel which i'm sure people are familiar with that Mm-hmm. Only only difference I do with that I I've got I kind of have the two one in each hand I've got those those but you can use the big wheel it doesn't really matter but the main thing with that I do it on my knees and that you want your knees up off the ground not just on a little one inch mat I mean mine's like two feet off the ground my knees are I have like some mats a couple little pads uh, well I got the, the Bosu ball on some mats a couple pads on that and then another pad for my knees so I'm a couple feet off the ground so when I'm stretching that wheel out there i mean i'm totally getting some again it's some an eccentric stretch a load to my to my abs that you can't just do on the floor mm-hmm. so really lengthens i mean you that one by the time you've done those three by the time you get to that one it's you're again, toasted it's, it's pretty toast so i try to get like again maybe 10 or those i'll i'll load it up sometimes i'll put a weight vest on with that so i can have make it harder always trying to think of something to do because I, you know, adapt pretty quick. So I'm always trying to tweak it a little bit to make it so I just don't plateau out. Now, th- this is great. Like this, <laughs> I don't hardly ever train my abs. Not like I should. I just do like the hanging raises and I'll, you know, you're engaging a lot of your core doing like the heavy compound deadlifts. Oh, totally. Squats. Yes. Yes. But I should definitely start incorporating more of these movements. <laughs> so that would be like a Monday. The next day I would do some more side to side stuff. And then, um, the next day I would do rotational stuff. And even just for a basic one for the rotational, if you take some of those resistance bands or you could take a cable, I mean, there is a difference. The, the bands, they increase their tension the further out you get. Mm-hmm. A cable has a constant resistance throughout the range of motion. So they're a little bit different. I try to mix it up and do both. But even just standing with your arms out in front of you with the bands or the cable, 
feet are about a little bit further and shoulder width apart. And just for the rotation part, just taking it at shoulder height and just rotating, taking it, you know, you're standing facing right. You just take it from left to right and doing that. I mean, if you increase your resistance and do a bunch of sets of that, I've got some other things in there as well. But if you really try to increase your strength, you're going to see results. You get stronger and you get more definition. And people love that one because it's easy to do. It makes sense to them. It doesn't usually bother their back. And um, again, you progressive overload. You're just going to increase your weight each set. Maybe on the last set, say if you do six or so, you're going to put a light and just crank out a bunch of reps so you get some of that in. Big difference. What? Uh, so I you see a lot of people uh, that they'll grab a dumbbell on each side, hold it, hold it to the side of them, let yeah. it hang down, and they'll just like do like a side crunch basically. Yes, yes. Do you like that or no? No, I don't. And I, that one pushes my buttons. And I tell people, you see these guys doing these things and I think it makes their obliques fatter or something. I, I just don't see that it works. So I've got one and it, it is too difficult to explain. I've got one where it does work your obliques, but I'm having you reach your hand overhead with some tubing mm-hmm. and you're going to, you're really going to lengthen through your obliques there through the side because your hands overhead with that tubing and kind of have you moving your hips around a little bit and it's one of the best ones. It's the hardest one to do form-wise because people have so many compensations. But the, the difference between that and a dumbbell, the dumbbell you're not getting the full range of motion for one. And with the bands, you're, you're lengthening it as you're stretching it. And mm-hmm. just that right there, when people feel that stretch with that tubing in their hand overhead, your arm is by your ear, your hips are bumped out to the side. And just doing that right there, you could totally feel your obliques just screaming at you. And it really tightens them up. Because it's more of a eccentric lengthening exercise than just holding a heavy dumbbell and bobbing side to side. No, I, I'm I'm really glad you said that because I've tried that exercise twice, and both times I've tried them. Like, this is the stupidest exercise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this doesn't do anything. I'm not going to do this yeah, anymore. But you see so many people doing it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, you know why they do it. This is a thing that I see. They do it because it's everybody else is doing it, and it's always been done that way. So sometimes it takes just a little bit of uh, understanding of physiology, biomechanics, and thinking outside the box a little bit. It's like, well, what do the abs do? So let me address that real quick. What do the abs do? They weren't designed to crunch. Like you don't, again, you don't see your favorite athlete running down the field doing a crunch motion. They don't do that. Maybe if you're just getting up out of the bed in the morning, yeah, I'll give you that. But they don't do that in most daily activities or sports. So if you take the most common function that we do, and that would be walking or running, then so what do the abs do in that? So if I'm, if I'm running down the field and my right leg is in front of me, my left leg's back, again, try to picture this, basic gait pattern, right leg's in front, left leg's back. So my right arm, your arms are just doing the opposite of your legs. So if my right leg is in front, my right arm is back. Mm-hmm. So if I draw a line or an axis through your shoulders, that would be one axis, and I draw another axis through your pelvis or your hips. My axis through my shoulders is rotated to the left, but the axis through my hips is rotated. Excuse me, let me make sure I got axis through my shoulders is rotated to the right. I'm sorry. Axis through my hips or pelvis is rotated to the left. Mm-hmm. So basically, all you have to know is when you're walking, these axes are going in opposite directions, and your abs or your core has to decelerate those axes so it's controlled so if my right arm is behind me and my left leg is behind me so my abs in the transverse plane between my right shoulder and my left hip they're getting lengthened 
mostly in the transverse plane, but it's really 3D. It's in all three planes. So they're getting lengthened, and they help decelerate the opposite hip and shoulder. So they're getting lengthened. I've got some awesome pictures of some Olympic athletes, some women sprinters, because the men, you know, they have their shirts on, but the women, you can see their abs. And if you take a picture of it, it's like, oh my, look at that. Their abs are totally lengthened. They're totally loaded. And they're firing big time to help control that, especially at those speeds. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing they do in, in the transverse plane. I won't go through all, all three of them, but another one in the sagittal plane are straight up and down. When my right foot hits the ground, as I take a step, your pelvis drops forward. If that makes sense. It's called mutation. It drops forward. It moves. Your whole pelvis rotates forward. But when you're walking, your, your head and everything doesn't go forward with it, does mm-hmm. it? You know, you stay up straight. You stand erect. So as my pelvis, my foot hits the ground, my pelvis rotates forward if I draw an axis through my pelvis and then through my shoulders, but my shoulders are upright. So I, my abs in the sagittal plane, they're getting lengthened. They're getting stretched because those, they're moving in opposite directions. So again, that's kind of what they do. They decelerate the shoulders, the pelvis. They move in all three planes of motion and mostly they move on the eccentric side. So if we can kind of mimic that a little bit in our training, train in all three planes, train standing up, and then add at least a few more eccentric type exercises with some weight, with some resistance. The results are, they're awesome. I think, you know, I think Robert, if I took you through one of these workouts, it's, you know, I'm looking at your picture like, man, that guy looks awesome. If, if you could just get through, especially that sagittal plane and do a bunch of sets, it, most people that are totally conditioned, got strong abs, take them through this. They're just, they hate me the next day. Oh, I bet I wouldn't set a chance, man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's interesting though, like people, like the abs are, are just another muscle. So like I've taken what I've learned from training all my other muscles and tried mm-hmm. to apply them to my abs. Yeah. And you think of that like crunches on a floor, they're just, you're not getting near the range of motion. You're not getting any resistance. So like yes. when I've opted to train abs, I've always tried to do like hanging movements. So I'm stretching it more and then I'll always try and add resistance, you know, yeah, whenever possible with like a cable or with a dumbbell or something, just simply to... Mm-hmm you know, apply the same principles with working squats and, you know, quads to mm-hmm. you know, working abs and doing, you know, those kind of movements. Um, yeah. On Good that job. subject, what, what, uh, so like sometimes I'll do like a decline, I'll get a decline bench and I'll do, you know, crunches with that. And, you know, I like to, if you don't extend the full way, you, you keep constant tension on the abs. Um, and I'm a big fan of like, you know, constant tension training with some of my muscles Am I better off doing that or am I better off doing like, um, I'll also do like a, I'll get like a GHR set up, you know, for the glute hand raise and then I'll mm-hmm. get on it, uh, inverse basically so that I'm, I'm looking up at the ceiling and then I'll just basically uh-huh. fully hyperextend to fully Hyper-extend, stretch out yeah. my abs and then come back up. That's not going to have the, the constant tension that a decline bench would, mm-hmm. but is that probably better overall? Yeah, I'm not sure. That's a good question. You know, that constant tension, I do some of that. I do that for my biceps and stuff. I love that stuff. I, I think it's pretty effective. And I really haven't tried it on my abs. I, You know, I think that's a good suggestion to, to give it a shot. Definitely, you know, I, I think you need the full range of motion. You know, still training, try to get the full range. And if you can eccentrically load them, you're, you're going to have better results. But why not mix some constant tension in there? Mm-hmm. I, I don't see how that could be detrimental. It seems like it would have, it, it benefits my other muscle groups. Yeah. It's like you said, they're just another muscle group. Why couldn't it benefit your abs? Yeah, so I haven't tried that, but that would be something to implement, I think. Uh, th- this is cool. I, like I said, I don't train abs near as much as I should because I just kind of rely too heavily on them getting worked as a secondary muscle. But mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm motivated to do that more just talking to you because it's, I don't know, it's fascinating. 
it's fun. Yeah, again, I think I think you're right though, because we, we talked a little bit. You just do mostly the some of the big lifts and stuff, and that's gonna make your abs fire and make them work. And you could just stick with that. But some people they like to train their abs. It's fun, and they want to see some results there. I mean, we're kind of vain, you know, and yeah. I think it's fun to just add some other stuff to it. Yeah, a lot of people. I mean, a lot, like a lot of people are overweight. They don't have visible abs. One of the most common you know, requests that I get from my clients is I want to see my abs, which is, you know, totally respectable. Who doesn't want to see their abs? Um, And then you get the argument of, you know, abs are formed in the kitchen, which I totally agree with too. You know, you could have crazy strong core, but if you have too much fat covering them, you're never going to see them anyways. Um, But that, you know, it's all symbiotic. It's all mutually beneficial. So you have to actually have have the muscle there too. And if you're not training, uh, you know, heavy squats, heavy deadlifts, which a lot of people aren't, they're going to be way better off doing these kind of movements, uh, mm-hmm. you know, engaging them with eccentric and concentric motion like you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. If, if you can, it, it is, it is really both. It's the best of both. Again, it's, you got to have the diet component and the, the training component, which I think that's what your expertise is too, is just, you're able to really take people that, you know, may have a decent percent body fat and really get that down. And that's, that's a whole art and science in itself. It's it's all fascinating though, man. Like I, I love like fitness and nutrition and health and training. Like it's, I mean, I could literally spend the rest of my life learning, and I wouldn't mm-hmm. even scratch the surface on what all. Oh yeah, do. yeah. That's what I love about it too. The more I, the more you learn, the more you realize you you don't know anything. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, well, shoot, man, I could sit here and talk with you all day long, but we've been we've been talking for over an hour now. Is there anything else that you want to kind of touch on? No, that was good. Um, you know, I just appreciate you talking to me and. Um, you know, I think that, that the ab training thing, really, if people can think about instead of training certain exercises, think about the planes of motion. Like, okay, what, what ab exercise am I going to do today? Maybe think, okay, what plane of motion am I going to train? I'm training the planes. Like, so today I'm going to do all straight up and down stuff. I think it's just easier for your bar- body compartmentally to move like that. I think you get better overload principles, so you're further breaking the tissue down, so it has to build it back up and i think just regardless of what you do even if you do stuff that's non-functional crunches sit-ups even if you can just focus everything on one plane of motion and then the next day do more whatever rotational stuff just implementing that one step right there i think can make make a big difference i completely agree what what's your take on um you know so you you said basically training them three times a week in each plane you're not going to have to worry about overtraining them do you think like abs I mean, abs are probably pretty hard to overtrain. You could probably honestly do abs almost every day. I mean, I do them every. I try to do them six days a week. I don't always get that in, but I, I do that three and then repeat it again. And you don't feel like you're overtraining them all, or you're having slow time to recover. Uh, all I know is if I skip a workout, if I skip one of my abs, the next time I do it, I'm I'm sore all over again. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's probably similar because I mean, you think about you know you're using your calves every day when you train or when you mm-hmm. walk. Um, mm-hmm. and, and calves are always a trouble body part and I've always had chicken legs. So I pretty much have mm-hmm. decided to just train calves every single day. So that's what I do. And that's the only thing that's gotten them to grow. So I, I, I would mm. venture to say you could probably incorporate the same thing with your abs because you're using your abs a lot just in, you know, day to day activities. So training them every day with intention would probably be totally fine as well. Yeah. And there's some science behind that. I mean, you know, there are, it's a phasic muscle like your gastrocnemius, your calf. It's a, it's a phasic muscle. Your abs and core supposedly are the same too. So there's some theories that saying you could train those every day and just exactly what you said, you get better results. I mean, I got a friend of mine. He he went for like 
three months of training his biceps every day. He never got a strain, never had problems. He's like, why can't I train every day? And he got, he got amazing results with that. That's not a phasic muscle, but I think you're definitely right. Just with those type of muscle groups, I, I kind of err on the side maybe of overtraining, but I haven't had any problems with it. I think I think overtraining is, I don't know, it's... It's over, overstated. Yeah, overtraining is overstated. <laughs> Some people are worried about overtraining, and it's just like, oh my gosh, just go train and lift heavy just, stuff and work out hard, and you're going to see results. I agree. I totally agree. Well, we're speaking the same language for sure here, Michael. Yeah. I've learned I've learned yeah. a ton, man. This, this has been it's really good. good for me. Yeah, thanks. A lot of fun. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, where can people go to, to find out more about you? Yeah, I've got a website. Again, this was a website I used for my seminars when I was doing that, so I don't don't necessarily use it for any anything else. I don't even do the seminars now, but at least if they want to contact me, they can. It's 3dperformancesystems.com. Again, that's systems with an S, 3dperformancesystems.com. Perfect, perfect. I'll link at, I'll link at that in the show notes as well so okay. people will be able to find it, no problem. All right, great. Awesome. Well, Michael, again, man, it's been a pleasure. Learned a ton, and uh, we'll stay in touch for sure. <laughs>